Welcome to this edition of the IWI CFITrainer.net podcast. Many fire investigators who work in the private sector are either self-employed or work for fire investigation firms or related industries. There are many aspects of private sector employment that differ greatly from the public sector, which is where many fire investigators start their career. In this podcast, we'll take a look at the business of being a fire investigator in the private sector. We hope you can take some of what you learned today to help you and your career. Joining us to discuss the topic are Mike Schlappman and Steve Carmen. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thanks a lot, Rod. Nice to talk with you today. I appreciate it very much. So why don't uh, each of you sort of give me a brief background, your uh, company or the position that you're in now, and and sort of what's going on, and then uh, we'll move on from there. Mike? Yeah, um, I'm the president of Fire Consulting and Case Review International in Lenexa, Kansas, and um, I've had a a very good career as a fire investigator, having started as a uh, police uh, detective and uh, then uh, later uh, being hired by a national firm, and then later starting my own, uh, after five years, starting my own uh, business. That was way back in 1985 and have been um, operating ever since. Awesome. How about you, Steve? Well, I have uh, been running my own company for about seven years now. When I first retired from a career with uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, I decided that I wanted to go work for myself. I'd worked for other people long enough, and even though I didn't know much about business or how to structure a company, I gave it a shot. Uh, For the first six years, I ran a a sole proprietorship where it was just me, and this last year I've started a small corporation, and I've incorporated one other employee. Great. That gives us a little bit of background, Steve, on, on how you set things up. Um, Mike, do you want to talk about that transition before you, you know, right as you left, uh, I guess in this case, you did public sector to private with a corporation, but then you made this jump into your own business. You want to talk a little bit about how you did it? Sure. Um, having the basis with the uh, national firm, I learned a lot of things that I needed to know to become a, um, to go on my own. And one of the things I learned is how to to structure uh, reports, expert reports in fire investigations, and also um, how to relate to clients. And, um, and nobody can teach you this, but how to re- how to relate to everyone. Um, so my primary transition problem from the from the public sector to the private sector was the report writing, because there's quite a difference in a public service and private investigation report. So what was the spur? What, um, is there something you want to talk about that, that sort of made you decide, hey, it's time for me to be on my own? Yes. Um, what happened was the, the clients continued to call me directly and, and only wanted my services. Um, and so, therefore, um, I was lucky enough to have impressed enough people that, uh, that it uh, came to me that... Uh, I could be working on my own, and and it would be more lucrative. Okay, um, Steve, we'll start out with you on this question. Tell tell us about how each of you are seeing today's fire investigators getting employed in the private sector. Who hires them, and and why do you think they're getting hired? Well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, some investigators are being hired by large companies, like Mike talked about. There are several national-sized firms that have locations in different spots around the country, and they 
focus on getting uh, new investigators to join them and then are able to teach what they want uh, these investigators to know. Other investigators are deciding from the get-go that they want to work on their own and are going to try to get out there and uh, learn as they go, so to speak. Um, I think there's probably some other companies that uh, want to hire someone for uh, in-house consulting, people that have a lot of uh, experience perhaps as engineers, or but not necessarily in the fire investigation field. So it's, it's kind of a, a big spectrum there as to who wants to uh, work for a large company versus a smaller firm or, or for themselves. What are you thinking, Mike? I'm thinking in addition to that, um, and now it's, uh, it's even more uh, becoming more prevalent, is many of the students that are going through uh, college and, uh, and uh, getting a degree in fire science uh, are joining uh, firms. The um, national firms usually like to hire them straight out of school and then give them the experience. Um, in my particular case, what I do is I take firefighters or policemen that are, are interested in fire investigations, and, uh, and then we make sure that they uh, get enough work, um, as we, we call them diggers. We go out and, and dig a, a bunch of fires and show them hundreds of fires over a, I've got a three-year training program. And then what happens is uh, they transition and uh, uh, eventually get their uh, IAAI CFI, at which time we, uh, we, we teach them how to do reports, and then, uh, and then they go out on the road. Um, there's no substitution for experience. You must have fire investigation experience and be able to actually see um, the fire scene and be able to interpret it. And we help them do that by training. It's interesting, Mike. Your transition is more similar to mine and what I remember my father telling me about corporate America. And I think a lot of uh, folks that are counselors in business say, you know, start out at a big company before you go do something on your own. Um, but Steve, with you, uh, you've got something, you know, with a large federal agency. Talk about what that was like, and, and there's probably some relevance to that in some of the folks that are in state or even local. Well, working for ATF, I was very fortunate that in the early 1990s, ATF took a, a, an approach to teaching its investigators that was slightly different than many locations, and, and what they did was they focused our training at the university level and at the scientific level. It's been clear that the transition of fire investigation has been going more towards science-based work and away from the previous uh, description, if you might, of uh, the art of fire investigation. So for us, with a lot of the exposure that we had with the science and the engineering and that sort of thing, we were able to get into a position that while we might not know the specific format of report would be needed by an insurance company or perhaps a product manufacturer. That's the type of thing that I at least took a chance that I could learn without too much trouble. I thought that what I brought to the uh, profession was the science and engineering angle and that that's how I was going to market myself. Uh, and I figured that with regards to nuances of reports or 
uh, formatting, things like that, that I could learn that as I went. And so far, it's been uh, not that difficult for me, and it's uh, even though the private sector is different than the public sector, it's worked out pretty well. Congratulations on that. I want to agree wholeheartedly with Steve on that. The the um, our our whole profession is is uh, more scientifically based and 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 properly so. Um, we need to continue through CFITrainer.net and through um, taking uh, advanced courses um, to study the science. Um, the people that are, are starting to replace us older investigators have that basis and need to have that basis. What we can do is we can pass on to us, and it, I believe it's our responsibility to um, pass on to them our experience. So you've got to continue going to classrooms, not only CFITrainer.net, but classroom training. Good point. And, uh, well, I know a lot of folks are doing that. We can see an increase in both places. Um, more and more folks are going to what would be called the residential or live courses. And, you know, certainly a whole ton of folks are up at uh, CFITrainer.net. So let's talk a little bit about the the transition from public to private as far as the daily job goes. Um, Mike, I know it's been a little bit longer for you since that transition, but I'm sure you remember the differences. And, and why don't you start out and then Steve can pick up. Day to day, you're in public sector. What's different? What's different is you have to go out and sell yourself. You have to go out to new clients and market. You have to market your your services and also, you had to learn, and I remember this the most clearly, uh, bookkeeping and accounting. Um, when you're when a small firm or a single proprietor, uh, you have to learn how to, to handle everything. You have to learn how to pay taxes. You have to learn uh, what kind of information you have to give to accountants uh, at the end of the year. Uh, to file your taxes, you have to even learn that there are taxes different if you're a corporation than a, than a private uh, a person. So those are the things that you had to learn when, when you first transitioned that was the more challenging to me because I wasn't used to going out and having to, um, uh, to actually do all the accounting and the administration. Um, the selling myself to clients uh, came naturally for me, but it's more difficult for some people to actually go out and talk to uh, strangers. And uh, I know that uh, Steve, because I know him for many years, has, has that ability. How about you, Steve? I, I would wholeheartedly agree with Mike. I came from 30 years in federal service, and I was not a businessman. And I didn't really know how to uh, set my own business up or anything like that. Fortunately, I did find that there's a lot of great resources out there that could help help make decisions as to what kind of equipment you needed to run an office, how to find an accountant, uh, the kinds of records you needed to keep. Uh, a particular publisher out there, uh, it's called Entrepreneur Press, proved invaluable to me with the many uh, books and flyers and things like that that they offered to, to help me learn how to do it. And it turned out to be much easier than I had feared ahead of time. The other thing that was probably the most difficult for me, and it may sound strange, but was trying to figure out what I wanted to charge. Because having been a public servant for 30 years, it meant nothing to me to go out and work 
12, 14-hour days and not be the least bit concerned about what I was going to get paid. I knew what I was going to get paid. So that was very difficult for me, and I've talked to other people that have found a, a similar, uh, found themselves in a similar quandary because we weren't used to asking for money. And that was, uh, that was a big surprise for me that it was as difficult as it was. But once I set on a rate and figured out what kind of business I wanted to shoot for, uh, it became easier with time. And that's another thing that I think a lot of people, particularly if they're going to go on their own, need to keep in mind. What type of work do you want to do? Do you want to work for an insurance company doing the initial investigations? Uh, are you somebody with uh, perhaps experience that would enable you to uh, get in and do reviews of other investigators' cases? Uh, one of those is not necessarily going to be the same type of work that uh, for each type of work rather, won't come to the same individual. You might do one, but you might not do the other. Uh, and so I, I think there's a lot of questions like that, basic questions as to how to, you want to structure your business and what kind of work you want to do that need to be answered. And those need to be answered early because otherwise, no matter how you go about setting up your office and, and talking to accountants and things, you, you have to pretty much have a single direction, I think, to, to go forward in. I love what you're saying about focusing on what you want to do, um, and and I think at the same time focusing on your own expertise. For instance, you know I know that you get involved with marine fires, and you have a lot of science background, and and that's uh, been good for you. So, talk about the mental thing. Uh, you know, for me uh, as a business owner, it was a big mental game to go from working at a corporation or going to working for another small firm. All of a sudden, you wake up one day. And you're it, unless you have a partner or, or some other people. What do you do to sort of set yourself up so that you can get out of that shock and start to move into a successful business? Well, in, in, my, in my view, um, you have to be a self-starter. And, uh, and so what you have to do is you have to get up every day and, uh, and go out there and, and try again. Courage isn't about... Uh, about being loud it's about getting up every day and doing it again um, I think that um, I think that uh, because it's you and you're it's, you're risking your capital and you're risking your your family's uh, um, uh, income that you you have a motivation to do that and so you get out there once you determine as, as Steve said you want once you determine what direction you want to go in then know you you do your research. You go out there, find out where the client clients are, and go out and sell yourself. You develop marketing materials. You you make sure you have business cards, of course. You you uh, get a telephone number and a and and a, and, a, and a website, and you can build your own website now for uh, almost nothing. And uh, and and you get out there and market yourself. You, what what um, what's hard sometimes is the fear that the phone will not ring. <laughs> it rings too much this week, and then it doesn't ring next week. Don't worry about that. If you've done your homework and you went out there and, and have these clients, they will call you, but they're going to only call you on a per-case need basis. So um, that's the, you would ask about fear. That's one of the fears when it telephone doesn't ring is it ever going to ring again 
I remember, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of freelancers that work with us in the production industry. And one of the guys says, you know, every day, every booking is my last day of work. And even after 15 years, they, <laughs> they, they don't know how to deal with it sometimes mentally. Um, how about you, Steve? I, I would totally agree with that. That's been uh, one of the fears that I had early on is how am I going to be able to get clients? And while I did come up with a web page and it was a the normal thing of passing out business cards and shaking hands and, and talking to folks at different conferences, things like that, I also would wonder, am I going to get called? Uh, for me, most of my marketing has been word of mouth. I do a lot of teaching around the country, and I think because of that, uh, I've met a, had the opportunity to meet a lot of people. I would recommend that for people that are planning on getting out, that ahead of time, uh, before you retire or leave public service, find out who works in your area in the private uh, sector and get out there and talk to them. Ask a lot of questions. Most of the people that I have uh, spoken with have been more than willing to share what they've got. They'll share everything from their rate schedules to contracts they use, uh, example reports, and so on. And that has been very, very beneficial. It's We have a very fortunate situation, I think, in that our career is not necessarily all dog-eat-dog. We, most of us like each other, we know each other, and when you work in this industry for a while, you're going to find out you see the same folks over and over again. And so there's a pretty good camaraderie out there that uh, can support us. I want to agree with that. If you have a skill, you have a, a, a specialty that you can impart to others, and you can go around the country selling that skill by by presenting these classes, and you don't charge for that even, um, you will get clients because they will see you. Um, that happens uh, all the time. And I have, a, I have a national client that sends me all over the country because they saw me in a seminar, actually. So isn't that, if you have that, that's, that's a way in. Your local arson task force, your state chapter, the IAAI, your your province, whatever whatever uh, entity that is teaching fire investigation, and you have background in that area, get out there and 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 present a class, and you'll get feedback, and you'll also get clients. Okay, so let's switch gears. Um, there's a lot of folks out there that I've known in business, and that I'm sure you both know in fire investigation or in, in the public sector community. And, you know, Mike, you had said, you got to be a self-starter. Some folks aren't. Uh, and they're great workers. You know, they go to work, they'll work their butts off for you. Um, but at the same time, maybe they shouldn't be in business um, for themselves, I should say. What, what would you recommend to them? Where, where would you look? I, I would look in at uh, the, at the national companies first, uh, and because they'll have a lot of openings, but you must, in many cases, uh, be willing to move from your area, or in smaller firms. Uh, smaller firms are more regional, and uh, they have uh, openings uh, just like everyone else. And um, and if you're talented, and you'll get to know them while you're still in the public service, as Steve said, and uh, and and they'll share with you what their rates are, and they'll. Uh, now they won't. Uh, I mean, in the 
it generally it's it's uh, the smaller firms either employ you as a full-time person with benefits or they'll uh, they'll hire you on a per case basis and then you're getting an hourly rate um, make sure though that that it's clear um, that you're going to be if you're what your status is is you're a part-time employee are you a independent contractor? Because independent contractors is going to get a 1099 at the end of the year, and you're going to have to pay your taxes. Steve? Yeah, I would also uh, recommend that for those people that don't feel confident in running their own operation, to take a look at some of the larger national companies. There are several of them out there. Uh, I would recommend that you talk uh of people in your area and find out who's got a good reputation because I think it's going to be important not only to uh, hook up with a company that has a lot of numbers and gets a lot of fires, but someplace where you're going to be able to learn. The one thing about our field that I think is different than a lot of fields is we've gone through some incredible changes in the last 25, 30 years in terms of the way we do business. You don't necessarily want to get stuck in a big company just because uh, they offer more security. If you're not going to learn anything and you're not going to be able to advance yourself, because when the time comes for you to go to court or to a deposition or whatever, it's still you on the line and it's your reputation. And so you need to continue learning and, and building up your own expertise as you go along. Some companies are frankly better at offering those opportunities uh, to new employees than others are. And so I would look for that. That's a great point, too. So I want to uh, go a little off script here and think a little bit about what we could take, a gem from each one of you. Um, Steve, seven years is long enough, so you've had to have an experience or two that you might want to share. And Mike, I know you've got several, so for you it might be harder to think about which one. But uh, why don't you each pick one thing that you think about from a day in being in business for yourself where you went, aha, you know, or wow, or boy, I never thought of that, that you'd want to share with uh, the folks that are listening? Um, I guess the, the, the aha or the surprise moment for me was the when I found out that I was on a registry for, for um, experts uh, for uh, both... <laughs> both um, insurance defense firms and for uh, plaintiffs' uh, firms and uh, defense um, of uh, criminals' firms, frankly. <laughs> um, it was, uh, uh, they called me aha, aha, was that I had proven apparently myself over time uh, in, the, uh, in deposition and in trial testimony uh, that uh, that I was added to uh, a bunch of these lists. Uh, I think the the surprise was that I was on this uh, I was on a list for the death penalty defense firms, um, and uh, I mean for the states, and that was um, to in fire cases, of course, its specialty uh, to find out to evaluate uh, uh, the uh, prosecution's case. Uh, that that is a um, that's the, I think that's the the biggest aha moment I've had in my career, frankly. So I guess you had to make a decision about how you were going to deal with that and and set some priorities for yourself so that you could move forward. Absolutely, and and the decision was that I was going to just as per the IAAI code of ethics, remember 
that we are truth seekers, not case makers, um, that we'd rather have a, um, a guilty person go free than an innocent person convicted. So therefore, I evaluate each particular case as to its merits, its validity, its scientific basis. And, uh, and if it's, uh, if it's uh, lacking, I will, I will tell the truth. How about you, Steve? Any uh, insight or aha moments or some gem that you've learned in the past seven years or unexpected happenings? Uh, surprisingly, it's the same thing as Mike. For me, when I started in law enforcement uh, in this field, I remember thinking to myself as a young investigator that I don't think I would ever be able to take a defense case because I had the impression back then that defense attorneys and the defense bar was out there to get guilty people off. And I think that's kind of a black and white view of a lot of young people in law enforcement. But when I got into this field, I was the private sector. I was given a couple of opportunities to take a look at a case, and I got involved with an Innocence Project case in California. And I have to tell you, it felt very awkward for me to be talking about a case that I found several mistakes made in and that would potentially be going against the prosecution. And what I realized was, despite how I had thought about things, there's an awful lot of people out there just trying to do the right thing, and they might not understand fire science as well as others, uh, but that what we need to do is to do our very best to get the truth out there, like Mike said. And, and that is a huge part of how my company works, and that is we definitely are truth seekers, and we will not sell an opinion to anyone. We're going to tell you what we believe is the truth, and you can take it or leave it, but that there are cases both in the criminal defense side, uh, product manufacturing defense, things like that, that may not be popular amongst uh, some potential clients or adversaries out there, but those uh, cases still might have some very strong scientific merit that there's nothing wrong with telling the truth. In fact, that's the right thing to do. And that it was just a surprise for me to find myself into that position and finally recognize that, wow, when you were a young man, you were thinking some pretty silly stuff. And so it was uh, it was just quite an eye-opener, because when we're in the public sector, we're pretty much all working on one side. And even though I don't think any of us intend not to tell the truth, I do think that we do go into it with a, a somewhat of a bias, simply because of who we work for and, and the agencies that we're associated with. Yeah, it's a position. And I agree with that on, on, on top of that. And, 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 and I use it, and I'm, I know Steve does, um, we use it as a teaching tool for other public service people. I mean, we don't name names and everything, but we'll use circumstances and we'll teach other fire and police people not to make these mistakes because it will result in uh, not a conviction uh, in a person uh, going free. Um, I've used it many times, and, and I'm on, <laughs> and as I said, it's, it's a, and it's not a betrayal. 
this is this is the hardest part for a lot of public people to believe that it's not a betrayal when you have an opposing expert that has a different opinion they can everyone has a right to their own opinion we sell our skills our education our experience not and our time we don't sell our opinions so we if there's mistakes made we learn from those mistakes i've made them and i've learned from them it's uh well, it's just awesome to have been able to work with you guys. You know, two real honorable men who I know have done a lot of uh, or made a lot of contributions to fire investigation, um, both in, I think, your day-to-day jobs, but as well as what I've seen you do with the IWI and sharing your knowledge, um, whether it was live or whether it was on CFI Trainer. So I know a lot of people are really grateful. Am I missing anything? Um, is there something you feel like you just want to share before we wrap this up for today? I do want to share one thing, and that is this. You must continue reading. You must continue studying. You must stay current. I, uh, the Fire and Arson Investigator Magazine, CFITrainer.net, classrooms, plus classrooms, and follow 1033 and 921. You've got to continue reading these, and every text, Kirk's Fire Investigations, any text on fire investigations you must continue to read or otherwise you'll fall behind and you won't you won't be worthy of our specialty fire investigator steve i i would agree with that i i think uh mike hit on a very good point we are in a very evolving field the rate at which our knowledge uh about fire science changes is is tremendous uh, the other thing I would strongly suggest is before folks get out of public service, try talking to the people that are going to be opposing you at trial or at deposition. Find out who those experts are, because the chances are, even though you look at them as the adversary and you're trying to beat them at the game, they may have some real good knowledge out there, and they may very well be just like you were. They may have been public employees or whatnot with a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, and you might learn from them. The big thing, I think, for a lot of fire and police uh, departments is that they tend to isolate themselves from the private sector, kind of looking at the private sector with a jaded eye that, oh, well, they're out here for money or whatnot. But that's not always the case. I mean, certainly they need to make a living like we all do. But there's a lot of people that are just out there to find the truth. And if you open yourself up to that possibility, you might learn an awful lot ahead of time, not only about how you might be able to function in the private sector, but also about the very basics of our profession. And I would not put on a defensive shell that we sometimes see in the uh, police and fire department business, particularly with law enforcement. Uh, open yourself up a little bit, and even if you don't necessarily take the tact that the other folks are trying to uh, put out there, at least you'll you'll learn a little bit in the process. Amen to that. <laughs> we appreciate both your time and expertise on this important topic. Thanks very much, Mike and Steve. Now with some information from the International Association of Arson Investigator and some news. With some recent changes in the makeup of Congress, it's a good idea as an IWI member to become acquainted with your new congressional members and encourage their membership in the FIRE Caucus. 
The Fire Caucus is the largest bipartisan caucus on the Hill. It protects the interests of those in the fire service. Please encourage all congressional members to support the Assistance to Firefighters Grant AFG, which provides funding for CFITrainer.net. As mentioned, in the January issue of Fire and Arson Investigator Journal, the IWI will host two events in Washington, D.C. to provide IWI members the opportunity to meet and schedule meetings with their local federal legislators. These events will be scheduled around the CFSI National Fire and Emergency Services Symposium and 27th Annual National Fire and Emergency Services Dinner, which happens April 15th through the 17th, 2015. The theme of this year's program is The Future Depends on Informed Leaders. If you plan to attend, be sure to register at CFSI.org and let us know so we can be sure to include you in our IAAI events. We will have a short meeting at the beginning to provide IAAI talking points to encourage your local congressman to join the Fire Services Caucus if they're not already a member. If you're coming in, it's best to schedule appointments with your legislators prior to your arrival so you will have some dedicated time to meet with them or their staff. Please RSVP to past president Roger Krupp. His email address is roger.krupp, that's K-R-U-P-P, dot B-L-L-E at statefarm.com. In some other training news, we've got an upcoming training event, a 40-hour Fundamentals of Fire Investigation happening in Bowie, Maryland. That's March 9th through March 13th this year. The IWI 2015 ITC this year is in Chicago, Illinois, May 17th through the 22nd. That's going to be at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare at 9300 Bryn Mawr Avenue, Rosemont, Illinois. Go to the firearson.com page to learn more about that and register for the upcoming event. Again, that's the IWI's 2015 ITC Chicago, happening May 17th through the 22nd. That concludes this podcast. Stay safe and we'll see you next time on CFITrainer.net. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. <laughs>